This morning, I'd like to begin by telling you a story, but before I do, I have to give a little bit of a disclaimer, although as I look around, this may not be necessary. Um, well, it is necessary. This morning, we're going to be talking about sexuality in the kingdom of God and how kingdom citizens need to be thinking about sexuality. And so much of the subject matter this morning is going to be PG-13. And so if you are here with small children, though I don't see any, now would be a good opportunity for you to take them across the street where they'll have a blast and make friends and learn about the Bible. And some of you in your modesty may be uncomfortable with some of the things that will be coming from this stage this morning. I understand that. Believe me, I'm uncomfortable too. (laughs) Saying some of the things that I'll be saying and reading some of the things I'll be reading. But believe me, um, this is extremely important. There are few things that more inform our personal identity and shape our worldview than our sexuality. There are few things in our lives that have more potential to bring great joy and satisfaction or potential to bring great humiliation and regret and ruin and destruction. There are few things in our culture today that are more polarizing and divisive and few things that Christ followers must have more clarity on and be equipped to stand with strength and humility than human sexuality. There are few things that God has created as perfect and beautiful that have been more distorted and ruined and used by Satan throughout history as a tool of destruction and mayhem and more used by man to do more harm than this morning's topic of sexuality. It's so personal and powerful and identity-forming and so prone to drive emotions and prone to be used for destruction that it's a topic that we as a church must be well-informed about, must be engaged in, must fully understand, and must be ready to fight for because it has the potential to be absolutely explosive in all of our lives. And so this morning as we begin, this will be a two-part series on human sexuality. We'll address a little bit from history about how we got to the place that we are today. And then we'll begin to answer five questions that will help us to become equipped and ready to fight with humility in this battle. Let's begin by praying. Heavenly Father, this is a dynamic and powerful topic. This is something that you created with perfection in mind and that we have distorted and we have used for ruin. We have empowered and equipped the enemy in this battle. So, Father, help us to become empowered and equipped to fight this battle well, to live in purity and strength as you designed us to, that we might know you better and reflect you better and be better citizens of the kingdom of God. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. So sexuality in the kingdom of God, what is a kingdom citizen to believe and practice as it regards to sexuality? Many generations ago, God created the heavens and the earth, and mankind walked in perfect harmony and perfect relationship with him. And oftentimes, it seems, they literally walked hand in hand in the garden in perfect relationship, having communication and conversation much like you and I are having now in a very personal, very real way. And then one day, we chose to believe a lie rather than the truth of the God that we could know as much as him, and therefore, in in a very real way, we believed that we could be our own gods and rule ourselves. We rejected this perfect relationship with God. And this event, we, of course, call 
the fall. And from this time forward, mankind exercised absolute sexual freedom. There was no philosophy, no religion, no social construct, nothing that placed any restrictions on what men could do sexually. And as a result of this sexual freedom, Paul writes in Romans 1 that men and women were degraded in their sexual practices. Dennis Prager is a, um, a, a speaker and writer and philosopher, and, and uh, he writes about the state of human sexuality during the period between the fall and the advent of the Hebrew Bible, pr- particularly after the flood, from post the flood to the Hebrew Bible in his excellent article called Judaism's Sexual Revolution, Why Judaism and Then Christianity Reject Homosexuality. And he gives us a little bit of history here that's quite interesting. He writes that the gods of virtually all civilizations engaged in sexual relations. In the Near East, the Babylonian god Ishtar seduced a man, Gilgamesh, the Babylonian hero. In Egyptian religion, the god Osiris had sexual relations with his sister, the goddess Isis, and she conceived the god Horus. In Canaan, El, the chief god, had sex with Asherah. In Hindu belief, the god Krishna was sexually active, having had many wives. The god Samba, the son of Krishna, seduced mortal women and men. In Greek beliefs, Zeus married Hera, chased women, and abducted the beautiful young male Ganymede and did other unspeakable things that I'm not going to read because I'm too embarrassed to say. Poseidon married Amphiphrite and pursued Demeter and raped Tantalus. In Rome, the gods sexually pursued both men and women. And then he writes, given the sexual activity of the gods, it's not surprising that the religions themselves were replete with all forms of sexual activities. In the ancient Near East and elsewhere, virgins were deflowered by priests prior to engaging in relations with their husbands, and sacred or ritual prostitution was almost universal. And I have to skip a bunch here because it's just too graphic. Women prostitutes had intercourse with male worshipers in the sanctuaries and temples of ancient Mesopotamia, Phoenicia, Cyprus, Corinth, Carthage, Sicily, Egypt, Libya, West Africa, and ancient and modern India. It was everywhere. It was rampant. And the sexual freedom that men and women engaged in was a very widespread and had little to no regard for gender or age. Martha Nussbaum, a professor of philosophy at Brown University, wrote that the ancients were no more concerned with people's gender preference than people today are with others' eating preferences. And she writes that ancient categories of sexual experience differed considerably from our own. The central distinction in sexual morality, what what made sexuality moral, was the distinction between active and passive roles. The gender of the object is not itself morally problematic, Boys and women were very often treated interchangeably as objects of male desire. And so in the ancient world, what is socially important is to be active rather than to be passive. Sex was understood fundamentally not as interaction, but of a doing of something to someone. And the results of this absolute sexual freedom was the, the abuse of children the objectification and demeaning of women, the de-romanticizing of the marriage relationship. Women were to manage the household and provide children. They were not typically objects of romantic love. And according to the Apostle Paul, this depravity sexually was just the tip 
of the iceberg as he describes the depravity of humanity during these times. Because humanity rejected God and engaged in all sorts of um, sexual activity, they did not think it worthwhile to acknowledge God. God delivered them over to a corrupt mind so that they did not do what was right. They're filled with all unrighteousness and evil and greed and wickedness, full of envy, murder, quarrels, deceit, and malice. They're gossips, slanderers, God-haters, arrogant, proud, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, senseless, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. Although they knew God's just sentence that those who practice such things deserve to die, that they not only do them, but even applaud others who practice them. That's the world in which they lived, and that's the world in which we live today. And then along came the Hebrew Bible, what we call our Old Testament, and Moses wrote of the true creation account. And people were for the first time introduced to a God, the one true and living God. And this God did not have sexual relations with human beings. This is the first time in history. It was revolutionary. It was a sexual revolution. And God placed boundaries and limitations on what was healthy and acceptable and beneficial in human sexual relations. And for the first time, we see women gaining a place of respect and dignity in the home. And we see romance in the marriage relationship as men begin to value their wives as more than just a cook and a means to have kids. We see books written like the Song of Solomon that's filled with romance and poetic language and beauty about the marriage relationship. This is unusual in the ancient times. And for the first time, we see children being elevated to a place of dignity and value. It was the Hebrew Bible that brought about this sexual revolution. It called for a change made a real change, and, and Mr. Prager argues that it made Western civilization itself possible. And the Old Testament was filled with stories of women who were leaders and heroes like Ruth and Deborah and Esther and Rahab, as opposed to women who were there for some sort of a sexual object, and where children were seen as valuable and integral in God's plan with David and Jeremiah and Joseph and Moses and many others. Judaism brought about this sexual revolution, and it changed the world. And then we fast forward to today. And let me just interrupt here to say this. I recognize that in this room, there's many people here, and there's a wide spectrum of what we'll call obedience to God's desire for human sexuality represented in this room, right? There are are some in this room who have maintained sexual purity to the best of their ability uh, for all of their lives. And then there are those in this room who've been rescued out of a life um, filled with sexual perversion. And then there are those in this room who are today engaged in what they know to be against God's desire and, and design for them in the area of sexuality. I recognize that. I know that. And I know that for some of us in this room, as I talk about these things, it's going to feel like a personal attack. And I want you to know this isn't a personal attack. This is, as I read some of these statistics and some of these lists and definitions and then move into God's word, I hope we will see this as a means by which we can become informed and engaged in this and see that there is a better answer than running in our own way, running in our own desire after the things that the world has for us. Does that make sense? So there's no judgment here. 
There is only hope here. So we fast forward to today. Pornhub, one of the industry's biggest providers, claimed their site streamed 75 gigabytes of data per second last year. That's enough to fill 175 million 16 gigabyte iPhones. As of 2013, excuse me, I fast forwarded too far. A total of 87.8 billion views. That's up 15 billion from 2013. 87.8 billion porn views. A lot of these statistics, by the way, are are a few years old. I'll I'll let you know when they are. An estimated 87% of college-age men and around 30% of college-age women, quote, double-click for sex either weekly or every day. That was January of 2016. Porn sites get more visitors each month than Netflix, Amazon, and Twitter combined. It's astounding. It accounts for 30% of the internet industry. Pornography does. A Google trend analysis showed searches for, quote, teen porn more than tripled between 2015 and 2013. So these statistics are five years old. Listen to this. Teen porn searches reached an estimated 500,000 per day in March of 2013, accounting for over one-third of total daily porn searches. And let me be clear, the majority of these searches for teen porn are not teenagers searching for teenagers. The majority of these are middle-aged men searching for teenage porn. And it's gotten worse. The content of the three most popular portals that serve as gateways to online porn contain 18 million teen-related pages, the largest single genre, and about one-third of the total porn content online. Again, this was from 2013, so imagine how much more it is today. A Google search for bestiality generated 2.7 million returns. 21% of Christian men say they think they may be addicted to pornography. That's compared to 10% of non-Christian men who think they may be addicted to pornography. Nearly 70% of church-attending men admit to viewing porn at least once a month. 10,500 children ages 13 to 17 are commercially exploited each year in the United States. This was 2013. Think about that. Child pornography offensive has, offenses have exploded by more than 200% in the last decade. As of December 2012, that's six years ago, National Center for Missing and Exploited Children's Child Victim Identification Program has reviewed and analyzed more than 80 million child pornography images since it was created in 2002. Over that 10-year period, that was a 774% increase in images related to child pornography. And the age that people are viewing porn is getting younger and younger and younger. Of those under the age of 18, children under 10 now account for 22% of online porn consumption. Children under 10. I have a 9-year-old daughter. It's terrifying. She turns 10 this week. Staggering. Almost half of teenagers say that sending sexual or naked photos or videos is part of everyday life for teenagers nowadays. Our youth leadership recently asked our teenage girls, have you ever received an unwanted 
sexual image. And all but one said yes. And now, perhaps the most um, infuriating statistic, more than 43% of Americans now say that pornography is morally acceptable. Every four out of ten people that you see in the grocery store, yep, pornography is A-OK morally. And this is just the beginning. In the May in May of 2018, NBCnews.com said that 40% more millennials in 2017 identify as LGBT, that is lesbian, gay, bisexual, or transsexual, than in 2012. So there was a 40% increase over those five years of millennials who identify as LGBT. On college applications, you rarely find the question male or female any longer. Of all the dozens and dozens of college applications that I saw, I'll give you one example. Purdue University, when you're admitted there, you're sent a survey where you have the option of identifying your sexual identity and your gender identity. They're no longer the same thing, by the way. And you're given choices, and you can choose more than one if you prefer. And the choices Purdue gives are asexual, bisexual, gay, straight or heterosexual, lesbian, pansexual, queer, questioning, same gender loving, two-spirit, prefer not to disclose, or not listed, where you can fill in the blank. Then you can give your gender identity, which is apparently different than your sexual identity, and you can choose more than one, woman, man, female to male, transgender man, or male to female, transgender woman, gender queer, where you identify as neither man nor woman, prefer not to disclose, or not listed, fill in the blank. Many of you work in the corporate world. I'm aware of a corporation where a person recently uh, underwent surgery to become a woman who was a man, and now the corporate rules require that you refer to this person as a woman if you, you have to refer to her by her name as opposed to him by his name. And if you don't, you can get in trouble. The University of Santa Barbara's sociology department provides the following, quote, Sexual orientation and gender are immensely complex, and the various terminologies related to them can be very confusing. Below is a complete list of the definitions to help provide a clear understanding of the terms. And I have one, two, three, four, five pages of terms to help us understand gender identity and sexual identity. I'll just list a few. And by the way, be aware that in this room that there are people who's, who have loved ones who are, are struggling with this now. Or there may be people in this room who are personally struggling with this now. And so be aware of those folks' dignity as I read these things to you. I won't read all of them. It takes too much time, but I'll give you a few examples with some definitions. <coughs> gender is defined as a complex interrelationship between an individual's biological gender, gender identity, and gender expression. One who assists gender is one whose sexual orientation, gender orientation slash expression matches their biological sex assigned at birth. Um, you can be gender fluid, gender binary, gender nonconforming, gender normative. Um, you can be gender queer, gender variant, third gender, transsexual, transgender, female to male, male to female, transitioning, trans man, trans woman, transvestite. And on and on it goes. There's 23 different things to help us understand gender. Sexual orientation. There are 22 different, 20 different words to help us understand sexual orientation. 
You can be bisexual, asexual, demisexual, gay, uh, gynosexual, heterosexual, homosexual, lesbian, lipstick lesbian, dyke, pansexual, scoliosexual. It goes on and on. And it gives a list of 35 different terms that help us understand this whole process, this whole state of America. You can be aromantic. You can be bi-gender, bi-curious. You can have biphobia. You can be closeted. You can be a cross-dresser, a drag king or drag queen. You can be femme or fluid. Oh, this defines probably many of us in this room, heteronormativity. The belief that people and or institutions, that everyone is heterosexual and that heterosexuality is superior to all other sexualities. Or heterosexism, the behavior that gives preferential treatment to heterosexual individuals. LG, wait, this is LGBTGSMDSG. Lesbian, gay, bi, transgender, and queer, gender, sexual minorities, gender, diverse gender, and sexualities. Metrosexual, MSM, WSW. MX is given as a a prefix for individuals who prefer not to identify as either Mr. or Mrs. So you may see that on a job application or something like that. I'm MX Smith. You can have polyamory. You can be questioning. You can be same gender loving or two-spirit. Or if you don't prefer the pronouns he, she, or him, his, or he, you can use Z or her, H-I-R. On college campuses, if you assume someone's pronoun, it's hate speech in many cases. And they finish by saying this, it's extremely important to respect an individual's self-identification. A person should never assume another person's identification based on behavior or appearances. If you're ever unsure about a person's identity, we recommend asking the individual how they self-identify in a respectful manner, as well as by which pronouns they prefer to be called, and always make sure to respect their choices. Human sexuality is, we're, we're living in a time where culture is quickly approaching anything goes. And human sexuality drives fashion, it drives people's sense of self-worth, it drives human trafficking, it drives pornography, it drives premarital sex relations, teenage sexual relationships, child abuse, it's everywhere. And the state in which we are in is, it's an epidemic of proportions that are difficult to fathom and overwhelming to consider, and the consequences are far more dire than most of us comprehend. The moral compass of American society is being damaged, perhaps irreparably. We don't know where we're headed, and and this fallout is catastrophic, and this is very personal to me and to many of you as well. I, I have stood witness Over the past few years, as marriage after marriage of friends of mine and friends of yours have dissolved, some of them over issues related to sexuality. (coughs) Excuse me. I received a call a few weeks ago from someone I've had a relationship with for over 30 years, someone I'm very close with, who's very dear to me. 
calling me because his marriage is crumbling due to his pornography addiction. They're going to have a baby tomorrow, their first child, and she's ready to file for divorce. It's extremely tragic. God's design for human sexuality is under an all-out, no-holds-barred, to-the-death attack. And by most standards, we would say that the enemy seems to be winning. And our culture is running headlong towards more and more sexual freedom. But at what price? We can look at the ancient world and we can see where we're driving ourselves in the pursuit of more and more sexual freedom through pornography and and altered gender identities and altered sexual identities. We are willingly and willfully causing the abuse of children, the objectification and demeaning of women, and the de-romanticizing of the marriage relationship in pursuit of sexual freedom that says, let me have it my way and don't you dare tell me what's wrong. We're willingly and willfully and literally enslaving vast swaths of our own population, many of whom are children. And in the process, our culture has turned its back on God and the sexual revolution that began four years ago, 4,000 years ago with the Hebrew Bible is crumbling in the wake of a new, quote, sexual revolution that began in the 60s. And the irony is that those who see themselves as sexual progressives who are driving forward for change and sexual progression are really driving for social and sexual regression. And we're going backwards. And we will see it get worse and worse as more and more children get abused and more and more women get taken and abused. And we find ourselves in marriage relationships where there's no more romance because of addictions, relationships are broken. We need some answers critically. We as the church and as citizens of the kingdom of God must be willing and able to stand in the face of this withering attack with confidence and strength, empowered by God's word and with his Holy Spirit, with humility. We need churches full of Gideons and Moseses and Ruths who are informed, engaged, and empowered and refuse to let Satan have his way with ourselves, with our husbands and wives and and children and brothers and sisters and friends without a fight. This was the introduction. (laughs) Now you see why it's a two-week series. In order to do this, we need to be able to answer some big questions. In order to be able to stand strong with Confidence and humility, we need to be able to answer some big questions as a starting point. As I began to think about this several weeks ago, teaching on this topic, the first thing that, the first question that came to my mind was, why does God even care about my sexuality? Why was I even created as a sexual being in the first place? And so we're going to address that question this morning. And the next week, we'll address the following questions. Why does God care so much about our sexual purity? Why is that important to God? What continues to drive this tendency in humanity to distort God's design for sexuality? We'll address that next week. How do we as individuals overcome this? If you find yourself in some sort of addiction to sexual perversion or or you're struggling with a lifestyle that you don't want to be struggling with, how do we overcome this personally? 
And then finally, as we look around and we read this history and we see what's going on today in the world around us, is there even hope for humanity? Can we overcome this? And so we'll address that question next week as well. This week, we'll address the question, why were we created as sexual beings in the first place? And the first answer that probably pops into your mind is fairly obvious, procreation. We were created as sexual beings in order to produce babies, right? But as I think about that, there's exam- plenty of examples in the, in, the, uh, in the natural world that illustrate that that's not necessarily necessary. God could have created us as asexual beings with the ability to reproduce, but he didn't. And so while this is an important function of sexuality, I don't see it as the primary or even the secondary function. It might even be tertiary. That's a big word I learned in science in, in college. It might be a tertiary reason for our sexuality. I think the primary reason is that so we can understand intimacy with God. Turn your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 5. You'll be familiar with this. <coughs> Excuse me. While you're turning, I'm going to take a quick drink. Oh, I need to hurry. Man. All right. Ephesians chapter 5, starting in verse 22. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church. He is the Savior of the body. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so wives are to submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself to her to make her holy, cleansing cleansing her with the washing of water by the word. He did this to present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or anything like that, but holy and blameless. And we read this rightly as a means by which we can understand marriage relationships better and, and roles in marriage and how we can interact with one another as husband and wife. And that's an appropriate way to read this scripture, obviously. But one thing that we can see in this is we can look at this in reverse. And we can see in this a better understanding of what it means to be a follower of Christ, what it means to have a relationship with God. As husbands, uh, husbands are to, to die for their wives as Christ died for the church. This helps us understand what it is that God did for us, what it is that Jesus did for us, right? And we'll get into this a little bit more in a minute. Look, turn back to uh, Proverbs chapter 5. We'll see a metaphor. This is a, a father writing to his son. Proverbs chapter 5, verse 3, though the lips of the forbidden woman drip honey and her words are smoother than oil, in the end she's as bitter as wormwood and as sharp as a double-edged sword. Her feet go down to death and her steps are straight for Sheol. She doesn't consider the path of life. She doesn't know that her ways are unstable. Skip ahead to verse 12. At the end of your life, you will lament when your physical body has been consumed and you will say, how I hated discipline and how my heart despised correction. I didn't see my teachers or, or, or obey them or listen closely to my mentors. I'm on the verge of complete ruin before the entire community. And then starting in verse 15, drink water from your own cistern. Water flowing from your own well. Should your springs flow in the streets, streams of water in the public squares, they should be for you alone and not for you to share with strangers. Let your fountain be blessed and take pleasure in the wife of your youth. A loving doe, a graceful fawn, let her breasts always satisfy you. Be in love with her forever. 
It's beautiful advice that a father is giving to a son, but we can also see this as a metaphor for our relationship with God. When we turn our back on the ways that he designed for us, we're walking willfully in, into destruction. But when we walk in his designs for us, he created boundaries for our own good. When we walk within those boundaries, it's healthy and good for us. And we will benefit in the process. Not only that, turn to Ezekiel chapter 16. If you haven't been in Ezekiel for a while, there's no shame in that. I respect you still. I hadn't read in Ezekiel for a while before this week. <coughs> Ezekiel chapter 16. If you... If you go to uh, Psalms, it's kind of in the center of your Bible, and just turn right, you'll go past Psalm, Proverbs, um, <coughs> excuse me, Ecclesiastes, Song of Psalms, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, and you'll land in Ezekiel. Ezekiel chapter 16, and I'll just read there for you a bit, starting in verse 1. Ezekiel's writing as the people of Israel are in captivity in, in Babylon. He's helping them understand why what has happened to them has happened to them. Ezekiel chapter 16, the word of the Lord came to me again, son of man, explain Jerusalem's detestable practices to her. You are to say, this is what the Lord God says to Jerusalem. Your origin and your birth were in the land of the Canaanites. Your father was an Amorite and your mother a Hittite. As for your birth, your umbilical cord wasn't cut on the day you were born. You weren't washed clean with water. You were not rubbed with salt or wrapped in clothes. No one cared enough about you to do even one of these things out of compassion for you. But you were thrown out into the field because you were despised on the day you were born. I passed by you and saw you lying in your blood, and I said to you as you lay in your blood, live. I made you thrive like the plants of the field. You grew up and matured and became very beautiful. Then I passed by you and saw you, and you were indeed at the age for love. So I spread my, the edge of my garment over you and covered your nakedness. I pledged myself to you, entering into a covenant with you, and you became mine. I washed you with water, rinsed off your blood, and anointed you with oil. I clothed you in embroidered cloth and provided you with leather sandals. I also wrapped you in fine linen and covered you with silk. I adorned you with jewelry, putting on bracelets on your wrists and a chain around your neck. You were adorned with gold and silver, and your clothing was made of fine linen, silk, and embroidered cloth. You ate fine flour and honey and oil. You became extremely beautiful and attained royalty. Your fame spread among the nations because of your beauty, for it was perfect through my splendor which I had bestowed on you. But you were confident in your beauty, and you acted like a prostitute because of your fame. You lavished your sexual favors on everyone who passed you by. Your beauty became his. Skip ahead to verse 32. (coughs) You adulterous wife who received strangers instead of her husband, Men give gifts to all prostitutes, but you gave gifts to all your lovers. You bribed them to come to you from all around for your sexual favors. So you were the opposite of other women in your acts of prostitution. No one solicited you. And you were paid a fee of, when you paid a fee instead of one being paid to you, you were the opposite. Therefore, you prostitute. Hear the word of the Lord, verse 42. I will satisfy my wrath against you and my jealousy will turn away from you. Then I will become silent and no longer angry because you did not remember the days of your youth but enraged me with all these things. You see here in Ezekiel 16, Ezekiel the prophet telling a story of Israel's birth, how they were rejected by the world and left 
bloody and alone as an infant in the field, and God came along and loved Israel and gave her good gifts and raised her up, and she became a beautiful nation, and he adorned her with beautiful gifts and clothed her and made her wealthy and powerful. And Israel then turned her back on God and rejected God and made herself the prostitute among all the other nations. (coughs) John Piper argues that we were created as sexual beings so that God could use this kind of language to help us understand who we are when we turn our backs on him. We are as Israel was before we know Christ. We're we're laying in our own blood, so to speak, uncared for with no hope of any kind of salvation, any kind of eternity with joy or peace or satisfaction, any kind of hope for a future. And God loves us in that state. Romans 5, 8, God demonstrates his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He came along and he rescued us. He pulled us up out of the pit. And he made us pure and blameless and beautiful. And he gives the entire world this opportunity to follow after him. And when we choose to reject him, we become the prostitute. We turn ourselves away from him. And we become the whore who shames herself before all the nations. We were created as sexual beings so that we can relate deeply and emotionally to this language. So that we can understand God's deep love for us despite of our sinfulness. And so that we can understand the great grace that God had for us when he lavished gifts upon us. The gift of his son despite who we are. I'm going to ask everybody to stand. <coughs> Excuse me. Next week, we'll address these other questions. We'll touch on this question again, and we'll address these other questions of why does God care so much about sexual purity, what continues to drive humanity away from God's plan for sexual purity, how do I as an individual overcome this, And is there hope for humanity? So make sure and come back next week as we address those things. You may be here this morning as a guest, and you're going, holy moly, what did I step into? I'm glad you're here. I'm glad every one of you is here. This is so important for us to get. We'll see next week that um, when we take our sexual purity and we we give it away, it distorts our understanding of God. This is so important. This is so important. And so if you're here this morning and you don't have a relationship with Jesus and, and you think, man, I've been running my whole life on my own and I can't get control of this thing and, and I know I need a Savior, I know I'm sinful, I want to talk to you. We have people among us that have been trained to counsel you through these things and I want to talk with you. So when I step down front, I would love it if you'd come forward and and let me know that's who you are today. If you're here this morning and you're trapped in some sort of addiction that you just want to get out of, or if you're pursuing some sort of a lifestyle that you just, you know is not who God wants you to be and and you want help, come talk to me this morning. I want to know about it. I want to pray with you. 
Thank you, church, for being here. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this day. I thank you for the opportunity to preach truth about who you are, what it means to be your follower. God, I pray for the individuals in this church. If we are to be your image bearers, we need to understand you and know you, and we need to walk in purity. So God, help us to do that. Help this place to be a beacon of light, a group of people who are empowered to walk in purity according to your spirit with humility and with strength. And I want this day to be the beginning of a revolution in this place. As we give ourselves more fully to you. In Christ's name I pray.